0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 276.
1: There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome
0: back to the Bob Murphy show. Here we're going to get into some pure econ. Don't worry, I'm not talking about super AI anymore in this episode. We're going to be talking about free trade. And it was interesting because let me give you a backstory. A while ago, I saw a Wall Street Journal op ed from Robert Barrow, who's a big gun, a free market economist community, if you don't know his name. And what he actually said in the article was fine. There was nothing false about it. However, it was liable to misinterpretation. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal editor or editorial team who put the title and the subtitle on the article for him, they did say something false. So specifically, and I wrote this up at the time and I've talked about this before. So the article is, the article I wrote is called Free Traders Should Be More Careful When Defending Trade Deficits. And I wrote that up. This ran on May 5th, 2018 for the Independent Institute. So folks, go to com slash 276 and I'll put links, obviously, to my article here and other things. So anyway... Barrow says he was making fun of Donald Trump and he says, the Trump theory of international trade seems straightforward. Selling stuff to foreigners is good and buying stuff from foreigners is bad. It's a form of mercantilism. Exports are attractive because they represent domestic production and American jobs. Imports are undesirable because that production and employment otherwise could have happened at home. Simple economic reasoning, however, suggests that this logic is backward imports are things we want, whether consumer goods, raw materials, or intermediate goods. Exports are the price we have to pay to get the imports. It would be great, in fact, if we could get more imports without having to pay for them through added exports. All right, so that's what he said. That's all true. And it's not merely that it's true, but it's important when you're just getting into this area or debate, whatever you want to call it, to hear someone say that. Until you hear someone say that, that, oh, there's a sense in which looking at the country as a whole, imports are the goodies, the way we benefit from international trade and exports are the unfortunate, lamentable price that we have to pay for it. Which again, flips the standard mercantilist position on its head. Okay, now, the problem though was that that argument is a little bit too cute because it often leads the listener to take it too far. And in this case, the people at the Wall Street Journal took it too far because the title they put on Barrows' piece was Trump and China share a bad idea on trade. And then the subtitle was Imports Are Things We Want and We Pay for Them With Exports. Isn't getting more for less a good thing? Okay. And so that argument, so, so the Wall Street Journal's editorial team or the person whoever did that was, I believe, arguing or had believed by the time they read Barrel's Piece, the draft he sent them, thought that, oh, Donald Trump is wrong for thinking the trade deficit is somehow a sign of the weakness of the U.S. economy or that China's eating our lunch or whatever, that actually a trade deficit is a good thing because a trade deficit means we import more than we export. And if the imports are the goodies and the exports are the price we have to pay, isn't it good to get more of the goodies in exchange for less of the price or at a lower cost? That's the way you want to look at it. That's a good thing, right? So trade deficits are good. Not bad, like Donald Trump, the mercantilist thinks. And that's incorrect, what I just said. You know, assuming that's what they thought the argument was, that's incorrect. So I had just assumed that that pattern would hold up, that yeah, yeah, you can get big gun economists who understand the virtues of free trade and they might use arguments like that. And then people who don't fully grasp the argument might paraphrase it And think that they're just distilling it down to say, ah, yeah, so trade deficits are good; they improve the welfare of the country because, you know, we're getting more of the benefits from trade without at a lower cost. So, of course, or yeah, why wouldn't you want a trade deficit? And again, that's wrong. And if you're not with me, don't worry. I'm major point of this current episode you're listening to is I'm going to spell out why that's wrong. Thinking that. But what's interesting is, on Twitter the other day, this guy. He's a speaker for Young Americans for Freedom and stuff, so I don't think it's out of line for me to say the guy's name. It's this guy, Daniel Martino. he's a PhD economics student. Well, I see what's economics. He's a PhD student at Columbia. I think he's like a fled Venezuela, I believe. I looked a little bit just to figure out who he was. Big pro-capitalist guy. And was it Hawley? Yeah, Josh Hawley had a tweet saying, the most important deficit America has is the trade deficit with China. Tonight, I forced a vote to tariff China until we get the trade deficit to zero and bring home American jobs. Okay, so very crude, old school, mercantilist fallacies involved there. Don't anybody misunderstand me. I am not at all defending either the policies that Josh Hawley is pushing here or even his logic or rhetoric behind them. Okay, so do not misunderstand me. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. It's possible that the people attacking a wrong idea are using bad arguments to attack the wrong idea. That's what's happening here. So they're correct that Josh Hawley is saying stupid stuff, but the way the arguments that this guy, Daniel DiMartino is going to use is actually wrong. Okay. And so this guy, Daniel DiMartino says in response, you have it upside down, Senator trade deficits. He's got deficit in quotation marks are actually a gain from trade. Dependency on China specifically is another issue best addressed with more trade, blah, 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 not with tariffs. Okay. And then he says, Milton Friedman explained it best. And then he's got this video clip. And so I had just assumed going into this that it was going to be the same kind of pattern that it was with the barrel thing, where technically Barrow didn't say anything false in his actual article. But then the people packaging it and trying to blast it to the masses sort of fumbled it on the one yard line and didn't quite get it right. And then they ended up saying something that was false. And so that's what I thought was happening here. But no, Milton Friedman himself says the false thing. Okay, so why don't I go ahead and play a clip? It won't be too long, but I want to give Friedman his due and let him develop the argument. And again, with all of this stuff, the point of this is not to say Milton Friedman's a jerk or he's overrated or anything like that. He's a bad economist. The point is so that you understand Economics better. That's why I'm going through all this. All right. That there's different, you know, like ogres, economics has layers and you can peel it back. And so the case for free trade gets more and more sophisticated the deeper you go. And since I know a lot of you have read Henry Hazlitt, you've read Bastiat, you've read some of my more pop books. And I want to say that, okay, we're at a point now where even the people who understand the case for free trade don't understand it expert level. And they end up saying false things. And in particular, on this, where on my Twitter account, I gently pushed back on Milton Friedman, the people coming at me, it wasn't like the Elizabeth Warren fans. It was classical liberal slash libertarian fans of free markets. People who understood that free trade is awesome. They were the ones coming at me. And they thought I misunderstood the logic and that some of them were like, calmly and patiently explained to me why tariffs were bad. It's like, yeah, guys, I know. I've literally written books on this stuff. Or books that contain (laughs) these things as part of them. It's not a whole book on free trade. Okay, so with all that said, why don't we go ahead and let Milton Friedman make his case.
1: Almost always about how we must export. And what's really good is an industry that produces export. And if we buy from abroad and import, that's bad. But surely that's just upside down as well. What we send abroad, we can't eat, we can't wear, we can't use for our houses. The goods and services we send abroad are goods and services not available to us. On the other hand, the goods and services we import, they provide us with TV sets we can watch, with automobiles we can drive, with all sorts of nice things for us to use. The gain from foreign trade is what we import. What we export is the cost of getting those imports. And the proper objective for a nation, as Adam Smith put it, is to arrange things so we get as large a volume of imports as possible for as small a volume of exports as possible. When people talk about a favorable balance of trade, what is that term taken to mean? It's taken to mean that we export more than we import. But from the point of view of our well being, that's an unfavorable balance. That means we're sending out more goods and getting fewer in. Each of you in your private household would know better than that. You don't regard it as a favorable balance when you have to send out more goods to get less coming in. It's favorable when you can get more by sending out less.
0: Okay, so there you have it. So let's. First of all, just unpack the good and the bad. So what is correct in his analysis is to say that, yeah, if you want to think of it in these terms, if you want to zoom out and look at the country as a whole as an aggregate, and that's part of the danger in in these analyses and what often leads to fallacious thinking. But yeah, if you want to talk like that, then yeah, it's okay to think of it and say, when it comes to international trade, imported goods, and I guess services, if there is a way you could import a service, maybe like a Zoom call with a foreign expert on something, that imports are the goodies. Just like Milton Friedman said, that's how the nation benefits from trade, right? So if we think there's a sense in which the nation benefits from trade at all, like if that's the question that we're first gonna answer is, hey, let's say we're talking about the US, does the US benefit from engaging in international trade at all? rather than just closing its borders to the world, at least in terms of commerce, and just producing anything that Americans want to consume, having it be made on American soil by American workers with other American resources. that that's the question, and I think most people agree, no, Americans do better. They have a higher standard of living if we trade with the rest of the world. And actually, if you did listen to my previous episode on the the part two of my Super AI Series. So that would be bobmurphyshow.com slash 275. I went through the logic of comparative advantage. And some of you are saying, oh, please, please, Bob, don't do that again. Don't worry, I won't. If you want to go hear it, go to the previous episode, 275. All right. So I'm not going to walk through that again. All right. So there's all kinds of arguments to demonstrate that even a nation that's more physically productive in absolute terms in every line of production still benefits, its people still get more. Goods, Even measured in physical terms, they get more stuff if they specialize in the lines in which they have a comparative advantage, make more of it than they're going to consume domestically, take the surplus, export that, and then use those exports to pay for imports from other countries who in turn have specialized in their respective comparative advantages. And then, again, the average American has more stuff than relative to the scenario where there's no trade at all with foreigners. Okay, so if that's true, then if you just think it through, how that works is, in a sense, the imports are the... How is it that it helps us? Well, it certainly doesn't make Americans have more stuff to consume because we ship things out of the country. No, other things equal. If we send goodies to foreigners, that's fewer items physically within <laughs> the geographical boundaries of the United States. So obviously if we ship wheat to people in Japan, Americans can't consume that wheat. That wheat can't be used to make loaves of bread for American kids, obviously. So the only way it's possible mechanically that free trade or just trade in general, whether or not it's free, allows Americans to have a higher standard of living in material terms is if, or just relying on the imports more specifically, that Americans would prefer the imported goods to the goods that they exported. That's how we benefit from trade. It's the same kind of principle at the household level. Why is it that someone would be better off trading with the rest of the community rather than just staying on your own property and growing your own food and making your own clothes? Well, because subjectively, you benefit from making whatever it is that you know how to make and then selling it to others, and then importing things into your household, which you pay for with your exports. All right. So that's the logic of how that works. And Milton Friedman summarized it quite nicely. But then the mistake is, and Friedman explicitly made it when he got in, you know, at first it was just a little ambiguous. Like it, he technically didn't say something that was demonstrably false, but I think when he got into the part about the trade balance stuff and said, but from the point of view of the welfare on the main then... We can see the trade deficit is actually a good thing, right? That that part may not be an exact quote. Also, the impression was also not perfect, but that is, that's just wrong, right? If an undergrad wrote that on an essay, I would certainly talk about it the next class, you know, because it's an interesting mistake. But I I would say, no, if I'm reading that at face value, that's wrong. It sounds like you misunderstood, all right? And so just because it's Milton Friedman, you say, oh, well, no, because I, you could see like that's the logical implication of where he was going with the argument, and I think he overstepped. Okay, so what's the problem? The problem is that there's a difference. There's two things that are very similar, but they're distinct. Okay, so here's a true statement. If the U.S. exports 10,000 bushels of wheat to Japan, and then we wonder... And, in terms of like its purchasing power or what's called the terms of trade, how many cars are we going to get in exchange for that? It would be better for Americans if Japan sent us two cars in exchange for those 10,000 bushels of wheat rather than just one car. Okay, so I'm not looking at conventional measures of imports and exports. I'm saying if the market value of the 10,000 bushels of wheat that we export were enough for us to afford to buy two imported Japanese cars, that would be better for Americans than if the market value of the exported wheat could only purchase one imported Japanese car. That is certainly a true statement. And so if that's what we mean, when we say, oh, isn't it better to get more imports for our exports? If that's what we mean, sure. But notice in that kind of analysis, we have a balanced trade. The trade deficit is zero if it's the case that the amount of money that we raise by selling 10,000 bushels of wheat to the Japanese is enough to pay them and buy two cars rather than one, in either of those scenarios, we're assuming that trade between the US and Japan is balanced. and We're just saying we export whatever $50,000 worth of wheat. And then the question is just with that 50,000, can we buy one car or two cars? So the question is, does the Japanese car to us seem to have a price of $25,000 or $50,000? You know, and it has to do, obviously, with the exchange rate between the dollar and the yen. So that's the question, okay? So if that's what people mean, then yes, it's better to be able to afford to import two cars for a given burst of exports rather than just one car, clearly. But that has nothing to do with the trade deficit. Now, again, this stuff gets tricky. I am not saying a trade deficit is necessarily bad. What I'm saying is you can't conclude that a trade deficit is good because of the logic that Milton Friedman just walked through. Okay, so why don't we switch to the household analogy and notice that Friedman himself invoked it. And so that's what's interesting in these examples. And this goes back to Adam Smith, who says what is wise prudence in the conduct of a single household can scarcely be folly when it comes to a great kingdom or something like that. That's not an exact quote. But uh, there's like six quotes from the wealth of nations that economists (laughs) teach to their students. And that's one of them. And I still don't remember it verbatim. And that's good advice. You can do that. So let's look at it in this case. And it becomes crystal clear, the fallacy that Friedman was invoking and these other people are invoking or relying on thinking they're being wise is crystal clear when it comes to an individual in the economy, right? So it's certainly right to say, hey, you working at your job, that's kind of like your exports to the rest of the economy. If we view you like your household as a country, okay? And then the money you spend buying things from anybody else that you don't make yourself in your own household, that's like your imports, right? And so to say, wouldn't you rather get more imports than exports? Wouldn't you rather be able to import more things for a given amount of exports? Or wouldn't you like to be able to get the same amount of imports by exporting less if you could? Wouldn't that be good? And yeah, if what you mean is that right now I make whatever, $50 an hour at my job. So I make $100,000 a year working, you know, normal work week and such. And so wouldn't it be good if all of a sudden the prices of goods and services got cut in half so that with my 100,000 a year I could now afford to import in quotation marks into my household nation twice as many goods and services as I could before measured in physical units or whatever the units are of the item not measured in money terms because in money terms I still doesn't import $100,000 of stuff a year if I consume all of my income, right? But if the price of TVs and cars and lobster dinners and such measured in dollars gets cut in half and my salary is still $100,000 a year, now I can buy twice as many TVs and cars and lobster dinners per year as I could before. So I'm clearly better off. My standard of living is twice as high, at least if you're only gauging my standard of living in terms of the flow of consumption goods, right? Like if part of my standard of living is because I have a nice view when I look out of my window or something, that's not getting doubled, okay? So that's certainly a true statement or a different way equivalently is if for the same effort, number of hours worked, if I got paid more, my salary went up to $200,000 and I didn't have to work more hours and the hours were no more grueling than they were before, it's not the conditions at my job site so got worse or something. But for whatever reason, I was all of a sudden getting $200,000 a year instead of the original 100000 That also would allow my standard of living to double. Okay, so either way, you could say for the same amount of exports, I'm able to import twice as much if we're measuring the exporting and the importing, not in money terms, but in terms of like the physical units, like, like my labor hours are the exports. And hey, for... Two thousand hours a year in terms of exports. Now he gets twice as many TVs and lobster dinners and such. All right, so your exports are still the same—two thousand hours worth of labor time or effort, whatever—are the exports in both cases? Okay, so that's how you do it in physical terms. But if we switch to money terms, well, then now all of a sudden those conclusions fall away. Right? You would not say that. Yes, when you're conducting your own household from the point of view of your welfare wouldn't you much rather be able to spend more money on goods and services than you in fact sell in terms of your own services to the rest of the community? So in other words, did we just prove that, yeah, you earning $100,000 a year from your job and then consistently spending $200,000 a year on TVs and lobster dinners and such shows that you're doing very well and you can understand the sense in which you will, yeah, but no, right? That if we don't worry about the future, if we're just looking at the moment, then yeah, if you live beyond your means, if you consume more than your income, sure, there's a sense in which you have a higher standard of living. But on the other hand, you can't just ignore the fact that you're consuming more than your income. And in general, that's not how households conduct themselves. In general, And certainly a little bit of this, folks, gets weird because there's an important difference between an individual household and a nation that the household has a definite life cycle, right? And that the average person has an early period where they're not very productive at all. And so they're relying on charity from their parents or whatever you want to call that investment from others. And then there's a middle period where they're very productive. And that's typically where they engage in a lot of saving where they consume less than their income in order to build up assets so that then later when they retire, they can flip it. And again, be consuming more than their income in those years and draw down their assets. So that's what the typical household does. Whereas a great nation, even though people can talk metaphorically about nations having lifespans and such, but still you get the point that there's no reason that a, a nation has to do that. It's not that there's a period like, oh yeah, well, here's where we're gonna have net saving. But then after a while, our people are going to stop working. And then there's no reason that's got to be like that for the nation as a whole. But for the individual household, it certainly is not true that in general, you're crushing it if you're consuming more than your income, even though there's a sense in which Friedman leads you to believe it. And I'm saying, what's the analog of a trade deficit? It's that, right? When we thought through and said, well, is it right to say, wouldn't it be better to import more than you export? And wouldn't that correspond at the household level to you just having a higher standard of living without having to work as hard for it? That's only true if we're looking at it in physical terms. If we're looking at it in money terms, then no, it's not true at all at the household level. Again, that would mean that you're spending more than your income. So if what the original conversation was about was trade deficits, well, then we say, so what's the analog to there? It's clearly to the money one, the second interpretation. Because a trade deficit is not saying, it's not looking at it in physical terms, it's not looking at it and saying, oh, well, there's just 10,000 bushels of wheat and two cars came in because you can't compare bushels of wheat and cars. What you do is you convert it to money terms. And so if the US has a trade deficit with Japan, it means Americans spent more on Japanese imports than the Japanese spent on American imports or the other way around. America spent more importing goods from Japan than it earned in exporting goods to Japan. That's what a trade deficit is. It's always the things are converted to money and that's how we measure it. Okay, so again, I'm belaboring the point, but if Friedman is saying, just think of it in terms of yourselves and your household conduct, he actually just told them, what you all realize is the case is that your standard of living is highest, that you're really doing a good job running your operations and you're conducting wise policy when you consume more than your income for a given time period. And in general, no, that's not true. So again, here, notice I'm not saying that's always a bad idea, right? I mean, depending on how small the time frame you want, every weekend, lots of people consume more than their income. And certainly in retirement, lots of people live beyond their means and they draw down their assets but that's okay that was part of the plan and that's why earlier in their lives there were decades they spent living below their means where they added to their financial assets so that when retirement time came they could start drawing down on those assets okay so that's so again I'm not saying the household analog of a trade deficit is always bad I'm just saying it's clear that you can't use armchair logic to prove that it's necessarily good and that if Everybody wishes they could be in a trade deficit all the time. It's just, shocks you can't because it's impossible. Okay? Incidentally, I'm not going to dive into it too much. Strictly speaking, the issue is it's what's called a current account deficit. That's really the thing that would correspond to living above or below your means. It has to do with if there were no financial assets, then it would just be the trade deficit or surplus would be the issue. That every period we start from scratch, the U.S., vis-a-vis whatever, Japan, China, whatever foreign country we're looking at, or just the rest of the world. And then, oh, how much of our stuff do they buy that constitutes income to us, foreign exchange, that we can then turn around and use to spend on stuff made globally? And if there's a mismatch, then that difference is either trade surplus or deficit. That's fine. And that would correspond to living above or below our means. But if we more realistically say, okay, but... Even at the start of a given period, there could be assets that we already own from previous investments, and so what if Americans own assets located in other countries, or that you know that generate foreign income for us that we're the owners of, and then we could use that to buy stuff. So if Americans owned stock in a Japanese company, and every year the stock issued dividends. And then the American owners of that stock use the dividends to buy Japanese cars. Like let's say every year, each American owner owned enough shares of the stock and the dividend was such that you could always use the dividends to pay for a car. And so then the American households just kept importing one car per year. That would be a trade deficit, you know, if there were no other goods sold to and from in each country, but that wouldn't be living beyond your means. All right, and so technically there the current account would not be in deficit. Anyway, that's just a, that's just a subtlety. Hey folks, let's take a pause in the action for me to remind you if you like what you're hearing, then I encourage you if you haven't already done so to set up a either a one-shot or a recurring support payment at bobmurphyshow.com/contribute. There's some incentives there for good as you can get based on your support level, but in general, if you like what you're hearing By all means, give back to the community. And I do want to mention, whether you do it or not, I'm not setting up a transaction. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to resume now doing two episodes in a typical week, one being my solo commentary and the other being an interview. All right, so I'm going to get back on track booking interviews now that things are a bit more stable on my end. So again, thank you for all who have contributed already. But if you're considering it, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, now let me throw another curveball at you. All right, so I hope I've gotten to the point where you can see that, oh yeah, this is a lot more complicated than just a simple, oh, imports are goodies and exports are things that we no longer can enjoy. And hence, you'd rather have more imports than exports. And that's what a trade deficit is by definition. So trade deficits are good. That you realize, no, 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 that's not, that's not the right way to think about it. I mean, dude, let me just drive on the point, right? So they, the dad comes home, I always use these examples, and he finds the teenager and the kid says, dad, I'm doing great this year. I'm earning $1,000 a month working a part-time job and I'm running up my credit cards and I'm consuming $5,000 a month and goods and services from the community. So yeah, I'm running a trade deficit, but you know, look at that. Like I'm really getting a lot more out of this economy that I'm having to put in, am I right? And so this is good stuff. High five. And the dad, of course, is very disappointed his son explains to him, this profligacy is unsustainable, my boy, and you need to turn this around soon or you're going to hit a wall and your standard of living is going to crash and you're going to have a real harsh dose of reality smacking you right between the eyes. And he probably says lots of other cliches too. No son of mine. Okay. But again, that is the logic that Milton Friedman just taught from the podium in the clip I played. And that's what the Wall Street Journal editors... Thought Robert Barrow was saying. Again, in fairness, Barrow wasn't saying that. But what he said led them to believe that's what he was saying. Okay. Another way of seeing it, folks, is hey, if we like voluntary trades and we can see how tariffs distort things, and hey, just sit back and let the free market do it, man. And everybody benefits from win win trades. And it's kind of arbitrary to, hey, like my household, I have a huge trade deficit with Disney World every time I visit there. And I have a huge trade surplus with my employer. And, you know, we don't worry about that stuff. And this is kind of arbitrary, right? That's all true. But then notice it's okay to have a trade surplus, right? A trade surplus doesn't mean you're a sucker. And yet Milton Friedman's logic there by and how the Wall Street Journal editors took Barrow where, oh man, if you have a trade deficit, that's great. That means you're getting more stuff in exchange for a lot. Then that would mean you're kind of getting ripped off if you had a trade surplus, right? That means, oh, you're having to give more in exchange for the things that you import. That's a bummer. You'd be richer if you could shave down that trade sub, right? So it's not that it's actually correct. It takes the wrong Donald Trump mercantilist worldview. And instead of making it right, it just inverts it. And instead of naively thinking trade surpluses are good, instead the Milton Friedman perspective here says trade deficits are good. And they're both wrong. Those perspectives are both wrong for the reasons given. And so the correct free market understanding, appreciating the benefits of voluntary transactions, blah, 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 is that, yeah, a trade deficit, as long as it's the result of voluntary market operations, is fine. It's consistent with, quote, a good economy. There's nothing bad about it. But, on the flip side, a trade surplus is also good for those people. And there's nothing wrong with it. Just like in general, you see a household where the people are in their 40s and they're saving a large fraction of their income. And there's a sense in which they're running a huge trade surplus with the rest of the economy. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not suckers. They're not, oh, look at this. These people, they're busting their butt. They're working 50 hour work weeks, they don't ever go on vacation. They buy secondhand clothes for their kids and they always buy used cars, nothing real fancy. And they eat beans and rice at night. And geez, that's kind of foolish. I mean, look at their neighbors down the street. They have a nicer house, nicer cars. They get takeout all the time. Clearly those people down the street understand economics better than the first couple. And you can see, no, if they're earning the same income, the first couple is, they're saving a lot more. So what they're doing is not necessarily dumb. It just means they're restricting present consumption to open up their options for future consumption. Whereas the other couple that isn't saving is doing the opposite. So it's not that we can say one is right and one is wrong. Preferences are what they are. But certainly you can't say that the people who are living for the moment and aren't saving are appreciating the logic of trade or something, which is, again, some of this commentary would lead you to think that. So again, so that's just another way of seeing that something's not right. So that's, I guess that's one way of putting it. Instead of merely defending the legitimacy and sustainability of trade deficits, a lot of times the pro free trade crowd in their zeal to defend trade deficits goes so far as if to say having a trade deficit is better than having a trade surplus, period. End of story when, no, that's not true. You could imagine situations where certain countries like, the natural thing would be for them to be running a trade surplus. And by the way, that's a good idea, right? Because one of the problems with old school mercantilism, besides just the economic errors involved in it, was that it wasn't universalizable. I think that's a word, right? If the old school mercantilists said, oh, what you should try to do as a ruler is conduct policies and conduct your affairs such that your nation exports more stuff so you can get more gold and silver coins coming in, then vice versa. So that on net, your nation accumulates gold and silver. But that can't be the case for every country in the world, if we assume for the second that there's a fixed stock of gold and silver coins. Right? It can't be that every country runs a trade surplus. And no, if some countries are running trade surpluses, that means other ones are running trade deficits. So likewise, you just do the mirror image of that. If now all of a sudden, because we've been listening to Milton Friedman and reading Robert Barrow, and especially the subtitle given by the Wall Street Journal editorial team, if now we think, oh, actually, the wiser way to run a country is to have policies that foster trade deficits. Then we get more stuff for our citizens than we have to give to the rest of the world. That's good. Well, it can't be that every country heeds that advice and runs a trade deficit. That's impossible in terms of the accounting. All right, so that's just another way to see, wait a minute, something's kind of screwy here and their zeal to defend trade deficits, they've actually just flipped the mercantilist fallacies on their head where we still come away with this sort of zero-sum mentality that, oh, for our country to benefit, other countries have to lose or at least not benefit as much when that's, no, that's not how it works. Okay, so now let's bring up Curveball. I got into a back and forth with Aaron sepulveda Kui. Aaron Sepulveda Cui. And he often goes back and forth with me on fractional reserve banking issues. And he brought up the point that it has to do with world reserve currency. And also the guy, Daniel Martino, said a similar thing, all right? And so they were sort of calling my bluff because I had said In my tweets, I said, yes, you want to get more... I was criticizing Friedman, and I said, yes, you want to get more imports for a given amount of exports, but that's not a trade deficit. And then let me just read more. And I said, when you export a bunch of physical goods, the more physical goods you receive in exchange, the better. For example, if the U.S. exports 10,000 bushels of wheat to Japan, better to get two cars in return rather than one. But that's not the same as saying it's better for the U.S. to import more from Japan measured in dollars then it exports to Japan measured in dollars. Okay, so I said that, you know, in my Twitter thread just echoing the points that I've made here for you folks, and I thought that's where the argument was going to be. And I thought people were just going to be going toe to toe with me in terms of the general case for free trade and what are the implications of a trade deficit or a trade surplus per se. But a lot of people said no, 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 we're talking about the US in particular and US dollars in particular. And so Daniel Martino, I can't find it now, of course, as I'm recording this, but he's in response to me saying, that, hey, it's not the same as saying measured in dollars. If the U.S. imports more from Japan than it exports, then that's a good thing too. And so I think we've established in this episode that, right, those are distinct things. The logic that Milton Friedman was espousing would convince you it was okay if we're thinking in physical terms, but no, once we're measuring it in dollars to say oh, it's clearly better for your the welfare of your community to get more imports than what you export. That No, that's not true. And Daniel Martino and Aaron, his case was more nuanced, but came back and just said, no, Bob, if you measure it in dollars, it's still fine. The statement still goes through because we're the world's reserve currency. And so it doesn't cost us anything to create more dollars. It would if we spent them domestically or it would raise... The dollar prices of goods and services in the United States. And so it wouldn't be quote free. But if we can export dollars to foreigners, we ship some $100 bills to people in Japan and they hold it over there. They add it to their cash balances and they send us cars in exchange. Then that's fine. That is a good thing, right? We're getting brand new cars from Japan that are awesome. Some Americans get to drive them around and they get the benefits from those things. And what do we lose? We printed up some $100 bills and sent them over there. Or we even just did it electronically and sent it over there. And if by assumption, they're willing to just sit on it, right? It's not that it quickly comes back and raises prices domestically, then that's great. Or to put it differently, so here I'm adding to it. I think Walter Williams said this once, that if you think it through, we send... $100 bills across the ocean the japanese send us cars and what are they going to do with that money if they sent it back to us to buy wheat then we have balanced trade right the whatever the dollar amount that we spent on the cars if they turned around and bought our goods from us then that's fine that's balanced trade and that's what you people who are worried about the trade deficit want's okay fine but what happens in the quote worst case scenario where they just sit on the money and they don't buy our stuff from us. And then the argument is, well, no, that's good. Right? That means they, ha ha, you fools, you just sent us a bunch of cars. And all we did was send you green pieces of paper with pictures of our dead presidents on them or just change you know, some zeros and ones in a bank ledger somewhere. And so who's the sucker here? That's great. And their point, DiMartino and others, their point was, that's our benefit. That's the privilege we get from having the world's reserve currency. And so at least in the case of the United States, even in that extreme scenario, Bob, where we're just, yeah, we're just measuring it in dollars. We're not doing any kind of fallacy. And yep, point blank. We print up a bunch of money and we send dollars abroad and they send us goodies. That's a good thing because it doesn't cost us anything to make the dollars. That's awesome. Okay. So my resp- I have two responses to that. One is to say, clearly, that's not what Milton Friedman's argument was, right? He didn't put in the caveat to say, now I'm talking, of course, about having a global reserve currency. And then we see the fallacies and blah. That's not what he said. He didn't say anything about global reserve currency. And then he also said, this is true for you in the conduct of your own household, right? So the people in the crowd weren't going around issuing their own fiat money. Okay, so he was clearly couching his argument in broad economic principles he wasn't making a case specific to the United States and its privilege of issuing the global reserve currency. Okay, so that's one thing to say that escape hatch is not what Friedman was using. But now, number two, I'm going to close that hatch anyway and say it's not an escape hatch. Okay, so again, the argument is that, oh, yeah, you're right, Bob. In general, if a country didn't have the privilege of having global reserve currency, I can see what you mean that importing more than you export could be problematic because in a sense, you're like increasing your debt as it were, or you're drawing down your assets. Like that's the way, just like with the teenager who, yeah, for a few months now, he's only been earning $1,000 at his part-time job, but he's spending $5,000 a month going to restaurants and buying clothes and video games and stuff. And yeah, he's having a good time, but that's not sustainable because what's going on, he's either drawing down assets he already had Or he's running up, the case I said, if he's running up credit card debt, that's how he's financing it. Okay, so in the case of international trade, it's similar that if you're running a trade deficit, and again, it's technically a current account deficit, this thing, then you have a capital account surplus. And what that means is foreigners are investing in more of your assets than you are investing in theirs. And there could be good and bad ways of looking, you know, not good and bad, but there could be sustainable or unsustainable ways of that happening. But one way that that could be working is that Americans' indebtedness to foreigners keeps going up. The foreigners effectively are lending us the money by which we import more of their stuff than we sell to them. All right. And so again, my argument goes through, that's why I'm saying it can't be true in general that Running a trade deficit is the mark of a wise nation for the reason that, oh, you're getting more stuff than you have to send to pay for it. That, no, that doesn't follow, just like it does for the teenager. But, you know, again, the sophisticated response is wait a minute, Bob, you're right in general, but when it comes to a situation like the US, if what those foreigners are ultimately acquiring is just dollar bills that cost us nothing to make, well, then we do get the free lunch, as it were. Okay. And so I want to say no, even that's wrong. That's the escape hatch. I'm not going to close. I just wanted to, again, recapitulate the whole context to make sure you're not getting lost in the weeds. And the reason is it is wrong to think that if you have the world's reserve currency, it is costless to print up $100 bills and import, let's say, cars with them, right? That I think some of the argument there, like the thinking seems to be what's the harm, Bob? We can get those cars for free or at the mere cost of printing up some green pieces of paper. And so, yeah, if that's the trade, that's awesome, right? Just like if foreigners really like Taylor Swift and she can go and perform some concerts and that allows her to earn enough income, enough euros from her European tour to import a bunch of foreign cars that she adds to her fleet. There's nothing wrong or unsustainable about that, right? Even if we might think that Taylor, you know, it was geez, why do you guys like Taylor Swift so much? That's kind of goofy. Okay, well, there's no accounting for Taylor By the way, I have no problem with Taylor Swift. That's just the example that popped into my head. So even if you think that, fine. But then by the same token, okay, so if we print up a bunch of $100 bills and foreigners just want to hold them for some reason, we can say that they're goofy. We can, whatever, it doesn't matter why. But if that's what they want to do, then why isn't that perfectly legitimate? In a sense, that's free, Right we just printed up those $100 bills and handed us in, we get the cars. And I always say it's not harmless or it's not innocuous because we could have also printed up those $100 bills, again, for the pennies on the dollar in terms of the cost of the paper and the ink or virtually zero if we're doing it electronically. And instead of using it to buy imports, we instead could use it to invest in foreign assets. Okay, so that's the thing so, so yes, given that you're the issuer of the global reserve currency, that makes you wealthier than if you weren't. That's a good thing to be true of you, but it doesn't follow that, ah, and so if you do that, that's why you should have a trade deficit because in that special case, the trade deficit is kind of this quirky thing that's just the outcome of the fact that you're the global reserve currency. And again, my point is, no, that doesn't follow because just because now we have the ability to create whatever, $100 billion a year in new money that we can safely, quote, export without it coming back and biting us, that that's what foreigners are willing to add to their cash balances every year. It doesn't follow that. So what we need to do then with that $100 billion a year is go buy goodies to spend it on present consumption goods. It doesn't follow at all. We could invest it. And so we could take the $100 billion and give it to Japan and say, we would like to get some shares of stock in Japanese companies, or we'd like to buy some Japanese real estate, or we'd like to buy bonds issued by the Japanese government, in which case the trade deficit doesn't go up. All right, I think technically the way that, you know, that would just be like one asset changing for another is I believe the way that the trade accounts would handle that. You know what it is? It's the same fallacy. It'd be like you're walking down the street with your buddy and he sees a $100 bill on the sidewalk. He goes, whoa and he picks it up. And then at the end of the street, there's a guy selling hot dogs. And your friend goes up and says, yeah, give me uh, two hot dogs with everything. And the guy gives it to him. He hands you a hot dog. And then and he gives the guy a $100 bill and says, cheers. And then you and your friend keep walking and you each get to eat the hot dog. And you're just like, holy cow, dude, you just spent $100 on two hot dogs. And your friend says, Well, yeah, but you know, these are actually free hot dogs. So I hope you liked your free hot dog. And I enjoyed my free hot dog. Today was our lucky day. We both got a free hot dog each. Am I right? And you're like, what what are you talking about? No, you just paid $100 for them. He said, no, because I found that $100 bill on the sidewalk. So you think about it, these hot dogs actually were free. This is just kind of a gift that the universe gave to you and me today. Enjoy. You see the fallacy there. That, That would be wrong. No, those hot dogs weren't free. They cost $50 each. They didn't need to but that's what he spent on them, okay? Because yes, he's richer given that he found the $100 bill that was a windfall, an unexpected gain. He's $100 richer than he was the moment before he spotted it. But that doesn't mean the hot dogs were free. He still chose to spend $100 on them and that's nutty. Even if he wanted hot dogs, he could have just spent whatever the market price was. He didn't need to overspend on them. Okay, so likewise, if the Federal Reserve prints up $50,000 in new money and then uses it to buy a $50,000 car from Japan, it's not correct to say that that car was free. No, it cost $50,000. That's what I just said. They spent $50,000 on it. They have $50,000 less than they would have had had they not bought the car. So it wasn't free. It cost $50,000. The fact that they got to $50,000 effortlessly doesn't change that fact because they could have done something else with it. All right, so again, with all this stuff, I'm not saying it's a mistake to buy a $50,000 car. I'm just saying it's not free. Even if the money you used on it, you were able to print up virtually costlessly in terms of how much did you spend on the ink and paper because of your special privilege position as the issuer of the global reserve currency. Okay, so again, it's not surprising that if you are the issuer of the global reserve currency that you would run trade deficits, but it doesn't need to be so is what I'm getting at. And it certainly, if you agree that trade deficits aren't necessarily good or they're not good for the reasons that Milton Friedman gave in the case where you're not the issuer of the global reserve currency, then making you have the global reserve currency doesn't all of a sudden change the case. I guess maybe that's a way of putting it. Okay, so in conclusion, well, actually, let me just mention one last thing. With all this stuff, it's made me go back to the original mercantilists and the debates and whatever. And I think actually... Modern economists, when they quickly zip through, oh, what those crazy mercantilists believe, and now we, after Adam Smith and David Ricardo, we know so much more, blah blah, 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 I think sometimes maybe it goes too far and there was a grain of truth in what the mercantilists were saying. So just like with a typical household, it's not obviously stupid to be, quote, running a trade surplus consistently where you sell more and goods and services to the rest of the community than you import from them. And so that every year you're saving, right? That's what it means. That's, you know, I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get home to you people that when these economists talk about how like, oh my gosh, if you just looked at it in terms of your own household, you'd see how crazy this market is. What the mercantilist thinking means in terms of your own household is that you save every year. And that's not obviously stupid. Again, there could be periods when you dissave or even just outright go into debt and like you're a aspiring medical student you go to medical school and you run up tons of debt cuz you think oh no i'm going to get a good job as a surgeon and pay that. All right so that that's not dumb just or a corporation wants to build a factory issues a bunch of bonds and if you just looked at it for that period where it was building the factory and issuing the bonds there's a sense in which wow they're importing a lot more from the economy than they're exporting right like look at all the bricks and the wood and construction work hours and stuff that's going into this company's flowing into the organization rather than what they're producing for the world. It's like a trade deficit, but that's okay. As long as the factory is going to be productive in the long run, they're going to pay off the bondholders and blah, blah, blah. That's fine, right? So you can have a quote trade deficit in the household level or the corporate level, and it doesn't mean it's stupid. But on the other hand, the idea that, yeah, as a general rule, you'd like to have a trade surplus... And be living below your means and acquiring ever more stockpiles of money or financial assets more generally. That's not crazy. And so when people mock the old school mercantilists, sometimes I wonder if actually we're doing them a disservice, right? So if you're advising a king back in the day, it's actually not obvious to me that it's stupid for him to think his country's doing good if, or doing well. Yeah, doing well if it consistently adds to its stockpile of gold and silver. That's not crazy. Now, again, I guess part of the issue is, like with a household, and I mentioned this before, partly you're doing that because you want to fund your retirement. And so you might say, okay, but you wouldn't just do that indefinitely. Even there, household, if they do do it indefinitely, so what? If you're going to pass it on to your kids, right? So then you can say, okay, but for the terms of the nation, what the heck does that mean? Or we're... But even there, you can say, well, we're doing it for our kids too, right? It's not that there's going to be some future country that's spawned by our country, and that's why we're accumulating all these gold and silver coins. But it could still be that, no, the present king is stockpiling gold and silver coins so that when his son takes over, the nation is correspondingly richer. He said, well, what are you going to do with all this? Well, I don't know. If we go to war with somebody, we don't want to have a big stockpile of gold and silver coins so we can hire foreign mercenaries or whatever. Right? So again, this isn't like crude, stupid thinking, oh, you guys don't understand how there's more money that just makes the prices go up. Like, no, that, that's not necessarily the case. All right, so anyway, I'm not claiming the old school mercantilists were expert economists. I'm just saying some of the glib arguments by which modern economists try to blow them up, I actually don't think follow. And that if you applied them to a household level, it would be terrible advice. So I'll say that. I suppose last thing, let me do, because I I was wondering this as I was just thinking through what points that I want to make. Maybe if you're really thinking this through, you're going to say, wait a minute, you're going to be troubled by something. You're going to say, hang on, Bob, isn't there some issue just like you were pointing out with one of the potential problems with old school mercantilism was that, well, gee, every nation can't run a trade deficit simultaneously. And so doesn't that cause division? So likewise with households, If you're saying, oh yeah, I kind of see the logic of just consistently living below your means, then, because notice folks too, even in retirement, even what you could do is you could save a big fraction of your income while you were working in your prime working years. And then even in your retirement, you could still, even though you weren't working or or, you you scaled back if you're like, I think I'm going to be working until the day I die, but that's because I'm not working in a coal mine, right? The stuff I do, I don't need to be in robust physical health to continue. But even in your senior years where your labor income is not very high, possibly zero, you still might be earning now so much from your financial assets or whatever else you got. If you own a bunch of properties or some real estate that are throwing off rental income, it might still be the case that you live below your means, right? Maybe you're retired, you're 80 years old and you've got $10 million in assets, and they're yielding a 5% rate of return. And you only spend $300,000 a year living life. Not just on yourself personally, but like showering gifts on your grandkids and stuff, paying for their college or whatever. So you still would be living below your means. And that, there's nothing, well, there's nothing obviously stupid about that. Most people would say, wow, that's very responsible, good for you. And then when you die, you're going to have a $15 million estate that's going to get distributed to the heirs of your choice. Good for you. That was a very productive life you led, assuming you made your money honestly, right? There's nothing obviously stupid about that. It's not that Milton Friedman needs to have a talk with that guy, okay? But you might be wondering now, you have these, like, wait a minute, Bob, how can it be that every household lives below its means, right? Like, isn't there some kind of fallacy involved there? Like, doesn't it have to be the case if some households are living below their means that other ones necessarily have to be living above their means, right? Because doesn't, like, the net saving have... and so here, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but no, that, that's not true. So for one thing, like just think about Robinson Crusoe stranded on a tropical island somewhere and he can pick 10 coconuts a day. He can go ahead and do that and, and not consume 10 a day. And he starts building up a stockpile of coconuts, right? Like he, let's say he only eats nine a day. And so every day, you know, he starts adding one to the mix. And then I guess it depends how long does a coconut stay good for. But he builds up, builds up, builds up. And then he gets a stockpile of nine coconuts. Well, I guess it would take him nine days, right? And so then on the tens day, he doesn't pick any coconuts at all. He just eats the nine that he's saved up. And then he uses that freed up labor not to lounge on the beach, although he could. But instead he uses that to just devote himself to constructing a net. And then he uses the net to go catch fish, All right, Or he does the same thing, he goes through the same cycle, and then uses the free up day to go get some sticks and some vines and time together to make a real sturdy tool to knock down coconuts with. So now instead of getting 10 coconuts a day, he can go get 30 coconuts a day. And so now he doesn't have to work as hard as that. He can, with much less labor time per day, he can have a higher amount of coconut consumption and he's freed up time to go start building the house or whatever. Okay, so in that context, clearly in real terms, We can talk about Crusoe living below his means and engaging in saving and investment in order to raise his real income over time, right? So those kind of standard economic concepts clearly are applicable to him. And so there's no logical fallacy. It's not that, oh no, for Robinson Crusoe to be able to save, to live below his means, when he picks the 10 coconuts, he's got to be able to lend the coconuts to somebody else who is then going to pay him in the future. Like, no, you don't need to do that. He can just do it himself. And if there were 100 Robinson Crusoe's on the island, they could all do what I just said. And then it would be true that every single person in the community could be saving, All right, So there's nothing stopping everybody, every household from engaging in saving an investment in order to improve their future income. There's nothing about the laws of arithmetic or accounting that stop that from happening. And then you might say, okay, yeah, but we mean like in a modern economy, like, you know, if you're gonna buy a corporate bond, well, then the corporation just went into debt to you, right? So it can't be that if, Some households are accumulating financial assets. So here, this is, a and there's even like textbook discussions and I'm going back and forth with this one listener. It's going up on, I want to say at least two years at this point where we've been going back and he's provided me with, I'm not using his name because I don't know if he wants me to. There's lots of demonstrations in certain economics textbooks and other things where that's sort of a standard result is the claim that, oh, if we're talking about financial assets, then yeah, net, financial saving has to be zero in the economy in any given time period. That if some people are lending money, then other people are borrowing it and it can't be, or you know, if this group of people is paying down their debts, well, then that means necessarily in the system, there's got to be somebody whose assets are getting reduced too, because otherwise, how does it work? And I want to say even there, I think that's wrong because yes, this is the last point I'll make folks. If a household lives below its means and it doesn't, accumulate physical capital goods because that's the trick with the coconut example is they say, oh yeah, but that's like physical saving. We're talking about financial saving, but instead wants to get financial assets. And so, yep, you're right. If they said, oh, well, you have an extra $100 a month because we're cutting, we're not going to that restaurant now as much. And so every month we got an extra $100 to work with and we're going to be responsible. We're going to save it. And what we're going to do is we're going to go buy bonds issued by this corporation. And so every month we add to our stockpile of bonds, $100 worth. So the market value of our bond portfolio of the debt instruments issued by this corporation goes up by $100 every month. Well, actually the stockpile goes up more because the if there's interest, okay? And right, if that's what we're doing, then it's true, the household's gain, its net saving is counterbalanced by that corporation's net borrowing. However, the household could instead invest in newly issued corporate stock and thereby gain equity in other companies or in companies, I should say, not other. And so from the corporation's point of view, to have capital come in buying new shares of stock, the corporation did not just go deeper into debt, right? So it's there's different ways. If a corporation needs money, it can either issue equity or debt. And I'm saying, yeah, there's certain... Characteristics by which, oh, they're kind of comparable. And in some levels of analysis, they're equivalent, but on other levels of analysis, they're not. That's why there's a difference. In the real world, it makes a big difference in many respects whether a corporation raises money by issuing more debt or more equity. That's why the decisions are different from company to company, right? Otherwise, if it were always equivalent, like why would debt even exist? They're obviously different things, different attributes, characteristics. All right, and so I'm just filling that last little logical loophole in case you know it was gonna bother you. There's probably three of you for whom that would be true. But I'm just saying, if you were worried that, well, wait a minute, Bob, if you're saying there's nothing stupid about households in general trying to live below their means and accumulating financial assets over time, isn't that the kind of thing where we all can't be doing that? And I say, yeah, actually you can. There's nothing in the laws of accounting or economics that would prevent every single household from living below its means As a general rule, there's nothing stopping that. Okay, that's a good time to stop. Thanks everybody for your attention and I'll catch you next time.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.